You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to continue with our part two of the way of the cross. And uh, last week we looked at several points about the way of the cross. And uh, they're up there. I think they're in your outline as well. But uh, last week we looked at them in the past tense. The way the cross was the plan of God. It was necessary, it was defined, it was rejected, and it was offensive, and it wasn't naturally embraced. And what I want you to do as we go through our message today is take each one of those points and change that tense to apply to you. The way of the cross is the plan of God. It is necessary, it is defined, it is rejected by so many, it's offensive, and it isn't just embraced naturally. Uh, We want to draw our attention to Matthew chapter 16 because this really blow takes a death blow at what we see in the current trend as far as Christianity goes in our modern society. Most of contemporary Christianity and church life is really bent and focused on being self-centered, being consumer-oriented, being market-driven, Those mentalities basically permeate the church today. I was just reading an article the other day from Biola University talking about worship. And in this article, the author says that when we approach worship in the church and we look at it, the music as a drawing point to attract spectators into our services, we know that we've gotten off track. And that's really what churches do today. That's why a lot of different churches, larger churches, they'll have three, four, five, six services. And each one has a different musical taste. <laughs> you got the country western, you got the pop, you got the, you know, all sorts of stuff. And you go to those services not based on necessarily what's being taught, but on your preference of music. Kind of silly. And so this passage today really drives a nail into that kind of thinking. There are a lot of people in the world today that want to identify with Jesus Christ. They want to identify themselves with Him as their disciples. They wish to call themselves Christians. And their whole perspective, to be honest with you, is not so much what they can do for God, but what God can do for them. It's very much a consumer-driven mentality. And unfortunately, the charismatic movement, with all its health, wealth, and happiness and prosperity doctrines, hasn't really done a whole lot. As a matter of fact, it's done us a disservice by simply telling us that Jesus wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He wants you rich. And if you aren't all those things, then there's something obviously wrong. Either you're not demanding your rights before a holy God, or you don't have enough faith to appropriate what is truly yours in Christ. Because Christianity today is thought of as being designed for you to get everything you need and want. All you have to do is go in the local Christian bookstore, go online and type in Christian books, go on Amazon, you see books like titled Good, Better, and Blessed. Becoming a Better You. Your best life now, etc., etc., etc. And the line in the Christian bookstores on the shelves, the, the shelves line are lined with books that focus on ourselves. And they're just waiting there, seeking your hard earned dollars. Even in fundamentalist movements and evangelicalism as a whole. Uh, Over the years, this me mentality has permeated to where we ask ourselves questions and we ask other people when we offer Christ to somebody for salvation, maybe an unbeliever, we say, well, wouldn't you like to be happy? Wouldn't you like to have the abundant life? Wouldn't you like to know peace? Wouldn't you like to have all your problems solved? 
Come on, come to Christ. It will make you a better salesman. It will make you a better athlete. It will make you a better businessman. It will make you a better husband or a better wife. And we advertise the get without the give. We advertise what we gain in Christ without the pain that comes along with it. And then you have the whole self-esteem culture and the self-image cultists that basically tell us that the whole purpose of Jesus is to boost our self-esteem and our self-image. And the reason that we are in the fix we're in is not because of sin, but it's maybe because of the way we were raised or having a bad self-esteem or a bad self-image. That's why we do the things we do. And basically, that just propagates a self-love mentality. And all these beliefs has really taken Jesus Christ and demoted him to some divine genie who really is demanded to jump at our every whim and our every request and our every want. But I want to tell you this morning that coming to Jesus Christ as simply a way of getting something is really to desecrate the divine teaching and the purpose of God as we find it in Scripture. The one thing you have to understand, if you miss everything else this morning, please understand this. God is the one who sets the plan and the ground rules and the terms for salvation and discipleship. It's him. It's not us. To be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ has overwhelming benefits. Don't get me wrong. It has incredible rewards. We're going to look at some of those. And those rewards aren't only present in our life here in this day and age in which we live, but they're for eternity. But I want you to understand that Jesus sets the standard. He sets the guidelines. He sets the box. He sets the rules. And what his rules say are there's pain before gain. There's a cross before the crown. There's suffering before the glory. And there's sacrifice before the reward. And that's what our Lord is teaching in this critical passage. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16. I just want to read the text for us. You can follow along. I'll begin in verse 21. We covered these verses last week, but just to put it in context. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In our text this morning, beginning in verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We see here a text that draws out a principle. John MacArthur calls it the principle winning by losing. Winning by losing. We're called to give up before we gain. That's the heart of discipleship. It's the way of the cross, as we've been looking at. This isn't new information to his disciples either. This isn't the first time that Jesus shared this information. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10. And you look at verse 37. He said the same thing in different terms. He said, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever... Love son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, you need to be willing to give it all up if you're going to follow me. Mark records it 
In a similar verse, Mark 10.21, Jesus is dealing with the rich young ruler. And he says to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, we find the same thing repeated over and over and over at least three times, four times in the Gospel of Luke as well. In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his own mother, his own wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Jesus wasn't, this wasn't new information. And he never beat around the bush. And even in the Gospel of John, we see the same thing, a crucial lesson, John chapter 12, where we hear the Lord say in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what Matthew 16 It's just reiterating the same thing that Jesus has said over and over and over again. Even the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22, he says, it is with much tribulation that we enter the kingdom. Remember, there's a narrow way and a broad way, beloved. And so this is a recurring theme in Jesus' teaching. This isn't something new. It's not like he baited the disciples along and then threw this in at the last minute. But he teaches them over and over and over again. Now let's look into our text for this morning because I want to note, want you to notice a couple things here. The way the cross truly is for the believer, the plan of God. It says there, then Jesus said to his disciples... What's he doing? He's explaining things to them. He's teaching things to them. He's unfolding the plan of God to them. This isn't something new. You can go back and you, you remember when uh, people were, uh, would-be disciples were following Christ and they wanted to go where Jesus was, thinking maybe he was staying at some fancy hotel, and he turned to them and he says, you know what, you're not coming to me on the right terms. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So if you think you're going to get a nice hotel room out of following me, that's not going to work. And from the passage, you can understand that they did not follow him anymore. There's a lot of people in Christianity today that are following Jesus just for what they can get. So he had to talk to his disciples about the way of the cross being that of sacrifice. He talked about the cost of of discipleship. He talked about the pain involved. He talked about severed relationships that may happen. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be reproach. There may be even rejection. And you have to embrace that. And you have to be a willing, have a willing heart to suffer as Christ suffered. And so here in Matthew 16, he brings this subject up again. And you say, well, why if he taught it to them before? Because they weren't getting it. They just weren't getting it. It's very clear they were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and rule and reign right then and overthrow the Roman government and take everybody by storm and, and just you know, be the Messiah that they were looking to establish his kingdom with glory here on earth. Well, that wasn't going to be for some time, but they didn't get that. So they were left scratching their heads going, Jesus, come on, I thought you were the Messiah. What's going on? They knew him to be the Messiah. They just confessed that. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But God's way wasn't their way. And instead of people falling at the Messiah's feet and worshiping Him, they misunderstood Him and they sought to kill Him. Instead of the religious leaders of Jesus' day stepping back and agreeing with the disciples, yeah, this is the Messiah, no. They, they attacked Him. They were threatened by Him. And at this point, He spent some two and a half years with His disciples. And they've seen all these miracles. And his words couldn't be explained. His miracles couldn't be explained. And finally, even the work of God in their own heart could not be explained. Because after their confession that was voiced by Peter, who was speaking for the group, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, Well, you've spoken well, but you know what? Flesh, your flesh didn't conclude that. 
My Father in heaven revealed that to you. So here we come to a point where they've heard Jesus say, I'm going to build my church, I'm going to, you know, you're going to see power, you're going to see all this. And so they were, were waiting for this to happen. And it says in verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples. And that means right then. It means he began to explain the plan of God. The other Gospels indicate that the crowds were gathered around Jesus and his disciples as well. So it wasn't simply a isolated audience with his disciples only. There was a crowd of people there as well. And so he speaks to his disciples knowing the crowd is hearing them. And he wants them to go back and remember the first time he called them. If anyone desires to come after me, they're probably thinking, well, why, wouldn't, why would we be here, Jesus, if we didn't want to follow you? Right? I mean, they've been following him for two and a half years. They're probably thinking, what do you, what do you mean if anyone desires to come at you? You don't think we desire it? And they didn't know to the extent their desire would have to be. So he wants them to go back to that original abandonment when he called them out of their tax-collecting business, away from their boats, away from the life that they knew, away from their family, and they forsook all and they followed Christ. He wanted to remind them of that sacrifice. And he wanted to use this as an invitation to those who have yet come to Christ, the crowd. He wanted them to know in no uncertain terms what it meant to be a Christ follower. And that's what that means. If any man will come after me, it basically means you want to be a Christian. You want to follow the ways of Christ. You want to forsake your own way and and follow Christ. You want to be his disciple. That's what that word means, follower. But as well as being evangelistic, it's also a way of edifying the disciples who already are followers. He wants them to be reminded. Sometimes we need to be reminded of our call to Christ. So many times we forget. When's the last time you sat down and pondered the day you came to Christ? What played out in your mind? Who was there? What information did they share from the Scriptures with you? Was it a conference? Was it a crusade? Was it in the quietness of your own home? How did you come to Christ? It's good to reflect on those things. So the, rem- the reminder goes to the disciples, but the evangelistic thrust goes out to the multitude that's, that's g- gathered there. It's it's easy to misunderstand the call that Christ puts on our lives. It's easy to misunderstand the commitment that we need to the Lordship of Christ. And what we're called to do is submit to Him with everything we have. Because sometimes we wake up and, (laughs) if you're like me, you decide, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing today. I'm going to do my own will. I'm going to do what I want I'm going to avoid the reproach and the hostility. If I stand up for Christ, you know, that's what happens. I'm going to avoid that today. I'm just going to take a day off. I'm just going to kind of clam up about my faith and just observe everybody. I'm not going to represent Christ in the world today. See, that's not an option. We do it because of our sinful nature, but that's not an option that we have as followers of Christ. He doesn't give us that option. And so the disciples needed reaffirmation of their faith in Christ, just like we do, over and over and over again. That's why it it, it speaks here daily a lot of times in this text, because it's a daily battle. 
This isn't something you come to Christ, you give it up, you, 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 you are saved from your sin, and then you just walk on water the rest of your life. I wish it were that easy. It's not. So if you come to Christ, you have to come on His terms. And the disciples like us need reminded of that. They need, we need reaffirmed about what the terms are. You can't come and follow Christ by your own terms. Well, how do you come to Christ? What are his terms? Well, that's what we want to look at. Verse 24, he mentions the first one. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, become a Christian, follow me, and be a Christ follower, first of all, let him deny himself. Very first thing, let him deny himself. That's where it all starts. That's not a popular message. That's not going to win kudos in this self-love society we live in. But that's where it all starts. That word deny simply means to disown. What it's saying is, Christ is saying, you know what, you need to disown yourself. It could be translated this way. Let him refuse any association or companionship with himself. (laughs) That almost sounds impossible. Because everywhere I go, I'm there. How could I disassociate associations with myself? He's not just talking about that. He's talking not just about the self-conscious self, but he's talking even about the flesh. In other words, we have to come to a point where we're willing to deny the capacity to save ourselves because we don't have any. You have to be willing to say, you know what, there is no capacity within me to save myself. There is no capacity within me to be all that God wants me to be. We don't have any ability at all within us. Anything good. Romans 7.18 tells us that. It says, in us dwells what? No good thing. Not, not a zippo, nothing. So you can't please God in the flesh. You just can't do it. You can't redeem yourself in the flesh. You can't be anything to speak of before God in the flesh. What we're called to is a selfless perspective that says, you know what, I am nothing. I am absolutely nothing. I can contribute, contribute nothing at all to my worth. I can continue nothing, contribute nothing to my redemption. And I mean, that just flies in the face of all the positive, you know, be happy in Jesus kind of mentality out there today. I told someone recently who was dealing with some major issues in their life, whether they're a Christian or not, I don't know. They claim Christ, but who knows? This individual said to me, you know, I, I just know that I need to go back to church. I just know that if I go to church, then I'll feel better. And this person couldn't go to church because they lived away from churches and they had no transportation. And here's what I told him. I said, you know what? I don't know if I agree with you. (laughs) Well, what do you mean? I said, I guess it depends why you're going to church. See, so many people come to church to get that shot in the arm, to hear their favorite song sung, to hear their favorite verse read. And they walk out with this artificial feeling of goodness. And I told this person, I said, you know what? If I were you, I'd just sit there and wallow in your sin and ask God to forgive you before you go to church. Break open your Bible and start reading it. I mean, you look throughout the Old Testament. Where was David so many times when he was in desperate straits? It was him and who? God. That was it. Nobody else. See, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes we need to pull away from the crowd. 
And I'd even say that even as believers, not on a continual basis, obviously, because we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But sometimes it's good to pull away and to say, okay, why am I doing this every week? Why do I go to church every week? What's my purpose? Is it just because I feel like I'm checking something off? Or am I truly here to worship the Lord? Or do I come just to feel better about myself because I went to church? And when I don't go to church, I feel bad. And I don't want to feel bad. Who wants to feel bad? See, it's all about our feelings. And Christ is saying, following me has nothing to do with your feelings. Nothing at all to do with your feelings. As a matter of fact, if you're following Jesus just because of your feelings, you're not going to be following him too long. Because the better you feel about yourself, the more likely you're going to misunderstand your need for a Savior. As Peter, who denied Jesus Christ several times, when he said, I know not that man. We must say that regarding ourselves. We must disown ourselves completely. That's the first essential, the first groundbreaking element, term of the Christian life. That's the way you come to Christ, and that's the way we're called to live the Christian life. We're to deny our flesh, our humanness. We have to look at our heart and realize that it's sinful. And the heart above everything must see itself as a future of damnation in hell forever. Knowing that we can do nothing apart from the grace and mercy of God. A grandson the other day called me and I could tell by the sound of his voice something was wrong on the phone. Kind of trembling and I thought, well, what's going on? You know, so I was, hey, Mason, what's going on? Oh, hi, Grandpa. I said, okay, you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm Okay. I'm like, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm sitting on the couch. I'm like, I know that, but what, I mean, what do you want? Why did you call me? Well, I just told Jesus that I wanted to follow him. I wanted him to take the blackness in my heart away. And I thought, wow. <laughs> and he was emotionally about it. I mean, he wasn't like, you know, yeah, I just got saved. I mean, he was, he was in desperate straits. I talked to Crystal afterwards. She said, yeah, I mean, well, we're doing devotion. He just said, I don't, I don't want to be this way anymore. I don't want to have this bad desire inside me to do bad things. And he knew that Jesus was the answer. And I thought, you know, that's what it takes. It takes that denying our own feelings about how good we are or whatever and coming to terms with the fact that we can't save ourselves. You must see yourself not only as one who does sin, the actions, but one who is sin. And in desperation, you need to cry out to a God who is a rescuer outside of yourself because you can't. This is not a situation, beloved, where you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just can't do it. Trust me, if there was a way to get saved by yourself, I would have done it. All right, because I'm very independent. I'm very kind of motivated that way. I like to work things out myself. And when someone told me, no, you have to do it this way, and this is what God says, at first, I, you know, I thought, well, wait a minute, there must be another way. No, there's not. And it wasn't until God convicted me on my sin, and in desperation, I cried out to him. That rescuer is Jesus Christ. And when you turn to him, Self is cast away and Christ enters in. And the Bible says that you become a whole new creation in Christ. See, Jesus doesn't just take the old you and patch it up and fix it up. He can't even do that. That's how bad off we are. He's got to recreate you. He's got to transform you. 
That's why in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. And it's not I that live, but what? Christ lives what? In me. It's subjecting oneself to the resources and subjecting oneself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Realizing you have nothing to be sufficient in and of yourself. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul said this, We who we are those who worship God in the Spirit, and we rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the what? In the flesh. The minute you begin to have any confidence in the flesh, beloved, you know you're going down the wrong path. And you can tell that in people. You can tell when people are, are especially in ministry, they're ministering in their flesh. Because they're so self-confident. Watched a video last week online of a church in Conyers, Georgia. This pastor, evangelical church, held a meeting at his church, big church, mega church, on a Wednesday night and got in front of his congregation and said, well, I know that some of you have some questions and I'm just here to tell you that there's two things in my life that I never asked for. One is the call to the gospel, the call to preach the gospel. And the other one is my sexual orientation. I'm homosexual. Still the pastor of the church. I mean, you talk about not being willing to deny yourself. You talk about reorienting yourself to make God's word say whatever you want it to say. It's exactly what he did for the next hour and a half as he talked to his congregation. One of the statements he made, he said, I'm just so thankful over the years of ministry, 39 years in ministry, I never spoke out. I never spoke an ill word against homosexuality. I'm like, wow. How can you not? I mean, it's throughout the pages of Scripture. It's sinful. That's what the Bible says. We need to deny ourselves. You come to Christ, you come to Him on His terms. The first one is self-denial. And this isn't something new. We've gone over this. In Matthew 5, remember, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. We have to come to a point where we're humbled, where we're, we understand that we're wretched before God. There's a, a TV show on <clears throat> by one of the guys from Way, the Master, and his, the title of his show is called Wretched. <laughs> Good show. See, until we see how damned we are, until we understand that we can never save ourselves, then we're never going to appreciate the preciousness of Christ's forgiveness. Until we understand how utterly poor in spirit we truly are, we can never really understand and appreciate the riches that we have in Christ. It's out of our deadness that life is born in Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted and to those who are contrite or crushed in their spirit. Only desperate people truly come to God through the Savior. In Luke 18, we see the publican and the Pharisee coming into the temple. Somebody once asked me, why do you always tell people just to cry out to God for be merciful to me, a sinner? I said, because that's a biblical prayer. If you want to pray a sinner's prayer, that's a great prayer to pray. It's right there in Luke 18. The Pharisees sat there and prayed, I'm thankful that I'm not like these other men. And this poor guy off in the corner, the publican, couldn't even lift his head up. He was so humiliated. All he could do was pound on his chest and he cried out, Oh, be merciful, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Couldn't even stand to lift his eyes to look into heaven because he felt so desperate. And Jesus says, that's the man that went home justified rather than the other. See, when you come on those terms you know that you've run out of your own resources. When you know you can't do anything about your sin, when you know that you're bankrupt in your spirit, there's only one place to go, and that's Christ. And that's anything new. In the Old Testament, that's why the whole Old Testament law was given. 
The Old Testament law was given not so that we could keep it and save ourselves. That's impossible. It was to show how unsavable we truly are. How unredeemable we truly are in our natural state. And so when God comes in Christ, it's all about grace to the desperate sinner who himself can do nothing but cry out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. So you come to Christ denying yourself. It means you take him on his terms, not yours. It's the proud sinner who wants to come to Christ for all his pleasure and all his gain. He wants to bring all his sin with him to Christ. You can't do that. And once you make that decision, Christ says, it's not just a one-time thing. It's something that you continue to do. It's a way of life. And that's a good reminder for us Christians because sometimes we grow a little comfortable in our armchairs of grace. And we begin to think that we're entitled to certain things that God never said that we were entitled to. When are you most happy as a Christian? When you perform your own selfish acts? Or when you see the Spirit of God working through you? When you disobey God? Or when you're obedient to Him? Arthur Pink said this, and put the quote up there, Grow in grace, growth in grace is growth downward. It is the forming of a lower estimate of ourselves. It is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. That's why when you read in Colossians 3, 5, it says we have to mortify our members. Ephesians 4, 22 says that we have to put off that old man that's corrupted by the lust. It's self-denial, self-denial, self-denial. It's the way of the cross. And it has to become a pattern in our life. When we say no to self, we're saying yes to the Spirit of God. Well, what are you saying? What does that really mean? We go join a monastery and live on a hill somewhere? No. That's what they did in the Dark Ages. That's why they were called the Dark Ages. You had all these so-called Christians going and joining monasteries and living up on a mountain away from everybody else and just separate and, and just them and God and, and, and the whole society became dark because there was nowhere to, no one there to take the light of God to them. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean you cloister yourself away. Matter of fact, it's, it's just the opposite. But when you're neglected, when you're unforgiven, maybe somebody insults you and you hurt, when you deny yourself, your heart is happy. <laughs> you know what? You just say, you know what? This is something Christ has for me. I'm going to count it worthy to suffer for Christ. I'm going to die to myself. I'm not going to hold revenge. When you're doing good things and they're spoken of as evil, when your wishes are crossed and your advice is disregarded and your opinions are ridiculed, or when you refuse to let anger kind of well up in your heart or even defend yourself, take it patiently in loving silence, What are you doing? You're dying to yourself. When you lovingly and patiently bear the disgrace or irregularity or whatever annoyance, whatever it might be, you endure it as Jesus endured it, that's dying to self. When you're content with any food or any money or any clothing or any climate or any society or solitude, whatever God has for you, then you're dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation, 
or record your own good works or look for pats on the back or accommodation from others. And when you're at a point where you truly love to be unknown, that's dying to self. When you see a brother prosper and have his needs wondrously met. And you can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy, never question God. Why does he have it and not me? Even though your needs go unmet, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one who maybe is of less stature than you, and you humbly admit inwardly as well as outwardly that they're right and you're wrong, and you don't have any resentment or rebellion in your heart, that's what dying to self means on a daily basis. The question we need to ask ourselves, beloved, every day, are we dead yet? Are we dead yet? I know I'm not. Got a ways to go. So not only deny yourself, but he also says, take up his cross. Second element here, take up your cross. Dying to self is one thing. Taking up a cross is totally another and you hear about this and people, you read commentaries and say, well, you know, that means, you know, the, the hard things that you bear. Some of you are getting together with relatives for the Christmas and Thanksgiving season, you know. Maybe it's that mother-in-law or father-in-law. Or whatever. Eh, that's my cross to bear, you know. And we kind of say it that way. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. Jesus was talking simply to his disciples, and his disciples understood exactly what he meant. There was no mysticism involved here. It's very simple. It's a willingness to endure persecution, rejection, reproach, shame, suffering, and even martyrdom, if need be. Remember, Christ hasn't died yet. They couldn't even grasp him going to the cross. They don't even know, really, in their own hearts, that he's going to die on a cross. He hasn't really said that yet. He's kind of inferred it. All he said in verse 21 was that he was going to be killed. He didn't say how. So they're not looking for some mystical understanding of the cross of Christ. What are they thinking about? What are they thinking he's saying here? What do you mean take up our cross, Jesus? It's no mistake that in the area in which they're even walking as he's talking to them here, about 120 years before this time, Tychus Epiphanes crucified many of the Jews during the reign of the Greeks. And it says that they crucified some 2,000 Jews alongside the road so that anybody who's walking anywhere in that land would see, if you rebel, here's what's going to happen to you. It's a common way of execution They had seen a lot of them. One historian estimates 30,000 crucifixions occurred around the time of Jesus Christ. See, we we, we think that, oh, Jesus was the only one. No, this was a common occurrence. So when he said, take up your cross, you know what they saw in their mind? They saw these poor souls hanging on crosses. You had this instrument of death strapped on their backs. That's what they were thinking of. To them, the cross meant that you're walking to your death. You're moving toward martyrdom. And that's exactly what the Lord wanted them to understand. He wanted them to understand, you know what? By following me, here's the stake. First of all, you have to deny yourself. It's not about what you want. It's not about how you want to come to me. It's about what I say. 
Secondly, you have to understand that the cross is an instrument of your own execution. Because when you come and you start following me, disciples, you have to understand that, you know what, people are going to start cutting you off real quick. Not all of you are going to die, disciples, but several of you are. Many of you are going to be martyrs. But you're going to bear a lot of reproach by following me. You're going to be ridiculed by following me. That's why 2 Timothy 3 it says you're going to suffer persecution. That's what he's telling them. You're going to be persecuted if you follow me. And that's not an option. He's not saying, okay, pick three of these, or one of these three. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be my disciple. First of all, you have to deny yourself. Secondly, you have to take up your cross. You have to come to the point where you're willing to name his name, even though it's going to be your head on the block. And we embrace that when we first come to Christ, when we we first understand that Jesus has forgiven us our sins and he died a cruel death and boy, we come to Christ and we're all excited and we're out there sharing Christ with everyone. We don't care what they say. As a matter of fact, sometimes we do it (laughs) maybe not in the right spirit. Just out there running over people. But we don't care what people think. And then all of a sudden we kind of settle into our armchairs of grace and kind of go to church and learn everything. And, and then pretty soon, you know, we can't even open up our mouth to the gas attendant or the grocery worker or the guy in the park that walks the dog. Oh, you know, well, we might offend him. They might not like me anymore. I mean, can you imagine being at a point in your life Where there's a chopping block there and they say either your head goes on the block or you deny Christ as your Savior. You pick. What would be your answer? I mean, we don't even think that way in the United States. But in many countries, that's exactly what it comes down to. It's exactly what it comes down to. And if it's not their physical life that's threatened, they're so thrown out of society... Because of their Christian faith, they're persecuted. Houses are burned, their families are killed. I mean, on and on and on you can go. We don't get that in this country. It's coming. There'll come a day when that's going to happen, even here. All I hope is that, as in 1 Peter 4, it says, the spirit of grace and glory will rest on you, and you'll basically have an overwhelming sense of God's grace during that time, and you'll be able to give the answer that affirms Christ, even if it costs your own life. See, those who come to Christ come on His terms. You don't just sign on the dotted line. You don't just raise your hand. You have to come to the end of yourself. And you have to so desire the precious gift of salvation that He offers you that you're even willing to sacrifice your life if need be. I mean, for us, when we think of sacrifice, you know, we think of, well, you know, I'm, I'm sacrificing right now. I'm here, aren't I? I gave up, gave up my Sunday morning. You know who's playing this morning? I mean, and we, could, we could justify all those things. And we kind of wear that as a badge of sacrifice. That's silly. We don't have any clue, I don't think, in America what it means to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. So he's reminding his disciples, you first of all have to deny yourself. Secondly, there's going to be a cross to bear. You're going to be persecuted for your faith. If you're not persecuted for your faith to some degree, then I would really want to know what kind of faith it is that you have. (laughs) Even in our country, if you go around naming the name of Christ, you'll be persecuted. People will distance themselves from you. They'll call you names. So we have to ask ourselves, is that happening in our lives or not? And if it's not, why not? Is it maybe because we're 
trying to be some little secret Christian, closet Christian. Never forget one time I worked at a place and it was a warehouse. I worked there for several months. Toward the end of the time there, I remember in the, uh, they have a, I'd have a, it was like a graveyard shift and I'd have a lunch hour or whatever and I'd go out in the warehouse and take my lunch and read the Bible and just kind of study and, and do things and, you know, occasionally somebody would come by and ask me a question I'd answer it. But I remember toward the end of my time there, one of the guys started talking to me and he started talking to me about his faith. And I thought, that's weird. And I fall, yeah, you're a Christian? I mean, I was utterly blown away that this guy even thought he was a Christian. Just by his actions alone, I thought, you know, this is somebody I really need to reach out. And he's, oh, no, no, I go to church every Sunday. And he never, ever even uttered one word that was favorable of Christ the whole time I knew him there. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of words that he used that were derogatory when it came to Christ. And yet, hey, he thought, hey, he had the faith. He was hidden. You know, he wasn't coming to Christ on his own terms. When you come to Christ, you're going to experience some hostility. I mean, there has to be, if you stop and think about it, it only makes sense when godliness invades ungodliness, when light invades darkness, there's going to be some pushback. And we need to be reminded of that. Well, thirdly, he says not only self-denial and cross-bearing, but also he says that you're going to have to follow me. You're going to have to follow me. The text literally says, let him be following me. It's a way of life. It's a submissiveness to the Lordship of Christ. And it becomes a pattern of life in our life. We imitate Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, We ought to walk as He walked. Good little book to read. By uh, It's called In His Steps. Great little book. Little kind of a story about a gentleman who takes that this, this verse, we ought to walk as he walked, literally. And it transforms his life. That's what the Lord meant in Matthew 7, when he said, It's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father. So true discipleship is marked by self-denial, by cross-bearing, and by obedience. A pattern of obedience in your life. Do you see that? In John 8.31, it says, Continue in my word, then are you my real disciple. If you continue. Uh, it's so important that you, you get that. And then he talks about the paradox in verse 25, quickly, 26. He says, For whoever desires his, to save his life will lose it. In other words, if the only thing you're worried about is saving your earthly life here, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, in other words, you're willing to deny yourself and follow me, you're going to find it. Which life do you want? For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? I mean, just say for a second that you could be even bigger than Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and you could own everything in the world. You could gain the whole world. Some of you are saying, that sounds pretty good. But, if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul, what's it going to profit you? Everything you have, every physical item that you have, your clothes, your car, everything, your TV, your loved ones, everything that we have here on this earth, one day you will leave behind when you die. That's what's going to happen. You were at a funeral yesterday for Holly's grandfather. And the hard thing is, when it comes to a point, you're putting that lifeless body in the ground. The only thing you have is memories. That's it. 
We have to remember that when it comes to living out our Christian life. We have to remember the fact that, you know what? Even if we could gain the whole world, would it be worth losing our own soul? The answer is absolutely not. Then he says, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Someone asked the question, would you give up one of your eyes for $500,000? Somebody needed an eyeball, would you give them your eyeball? If they could do an operation, you could be blind. Actually, would you give them a million dollars for both eyes? I don't, I don't know of a person alive that would say, oh yeah, no problem, I need the money. Why? Because you value your eyesight. Maybe it's failing even as it is, you still value it. You can't imagine being without it. That's the kind of value we have to be able to place on our own soul. And then he lists there the rewards of the way of the cross. He says, for the Son of Man, you don't want to leave him hanging here. He says, for the Son of Man will come. Don't give up hope, disciples. He's going to come in glory of his Father with his angels. And then, look at what he says, he will reward each according to his works. Each, that's, that's basically... Everybody, for believers. Also, there's a reward for the unbeliever, which is final, eternal destiny in hell apart from God, in torment, pain and suffering that we can't even imagine because of their rejection of who the Savior is and their willingness to follow him. And then he says at the end, Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Prior to his transfiguration, means royal splendor, that word there, kingdom. Most believe that refers to his transfiguration. I mean, one day, beloved, Christ is going to come back. And one day, we will either bow before him as our Lord and Savior or we will bow before him as our judge. And now we live in such we live in such an age, the age of grace where we have the luxury. And it is a luxury. To make that decision, how are we going to embrace Christ? Are we going to embrace him as our savior or are we going to embrace him as our judge? Only you can answer that before God. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you don't mince your words when it comes to following you. Lord, this isn't a popular message. It's not a a popular way to share the gospel of Christ, saying that you have to deny your own self, you have to take up a cross, and you have to follow you. You have to submit to your lordship. That doesn't come naturally to us. That comes supernaturally. And the only way that that can come is when God works in the human heart and transforms it. Lord, your word even says that the repentance that we're to bring is granted by you. We can't even repent on our own of our sin. We can't turn from our sin on our own. We have to turn to you. We have to ask you as the God who created everything around us to work in our hearts, in our lives, in such a way that Lord, whatever is blocking us from embracing you as our Lord and Savior, we need to desire you to remove that. If it's unbelief, help our unbelief. If it's faith, give us faith. If it's misunderstanding, correct that. If it's past experience in our lives with religion in general, just left a a distaste, a bitter taste in our mouth, we need to get over it. And we need to embrace the truth of the Word of God and ask you to work in our hearts as only you can. And as believers, 
I pray that we would never forget these truths that we heard here this morning. That we wouldn't leave this place with a sense of entitlement. But Lord, that we would leave this place with a great sense of debt that we owe to you. That we could never, ever repay. And that would motivate us to serve you wholeheartedly with our lives and our families and our church. That we would embrace everything that you call us to do. Use the gifts that you've given us for your glory, not our own. Because there's nothing in us that deserves glory. But that we would honor you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.